increment 118 of We See Jesus, and the title, which you'll see in Greek text, We Have a Great Archpriest. This is really the fourth time where you'll see that title. Ecantes un archieria megan. Therefore, having a great archpriest. And we'll go to Hebrews 4.14 for this one today. Our goal is in holding fast our confession, we ultimately hold forth the word of life in Philippians 2.16. Father, may this be the result of our intake of your word and of your grace, which allows us to hold fast to our confession of Jesus, the Son of God, so that we might be effective ambassadors of your Son, and that we may hold forth the word of life in this evil age, so that others can see the light that shines in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so that that light might shine into their hearts. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Hebrews 4.14, having... Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession, for we do not have an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, every book of the New Testament requires history and an understanding of history and the history that surrounds that book or that letter for a proper interpretation. Hebrews may stand out as above all the letters and books of the New Testament requiring an understanding of history and perhaps an historical imagination for its interpretation. We have to imagine that the Jewish contemporaries of the first recipients of this homily in a letter were reasoning with them to reestablish their loyalty to the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps for the main reason that these Christians had no archpriest distancing themselves from the temple in Jerusalem after being enlightened with the gospel, they cut themselves off from the astounding benefit of having a high priest to represent them in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem once a year to make expiation propitiation for their sins. That was the reasoning, perhaps, of their contemporaries, their unbelieving peers. Their peers may have made a passionate case to them, that they had even been left without the annual expiation of their sins, and that as a result they were expelled from the people of God, cut off and devoid of forgiveness, and even in danger of God's fiery vengeance. We have to imagine. We see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, and the eyes of our heart are the eyes of our imagination. We have to imagine that this line of reasoning was at least beginning to have some effect 
and that some of the Christians to whom this PT was reaching out, perhaps a small house church of Christians, some of them were considering reestablishing their former loyalty. So I can imagine being in this position myself. I can imagine being in the position of the pastor who wrote this homily, but I can also put myself in the position of the recipients of this letter. In fact, I might think about the argument made by my previous associates, the people I knew before and went to synagogue with, went to temple with. I might think about their arguments long and hard. But then I can imagine myself recalling Jesus' radical action in the temple complex at the time of the Jewish Passover, an event recalled in John, also in Mark, and in Matthew, how he made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple precincts, along with their sheep and oxen, how he overturned their tables, scattered their coins across the pavement. How he said, get these things out of here. Stop making my father's house into a shopping mall. John 2, 14 to 16. I can imagine him. I can see him with the eyes of my heart acting that way in the temple. The so-called cleansing of the temple was more than is usually portrayed. It was portrayed as a few minor actions by Jesus and made him look like a little bit of a fanatic or a radical. But the Pharisees and the leaders in Jerusalem perceived it as an act of insurrection. Not only an act of insurrection, but an act against what they considered most sacred and an act that would occasion capital punishment. So I can imagine seeing Jesus acting that way. And of course, it wasn't an act of insurrection. It was an act of reclaiming his father's house, which he said is a house of prayer for all nations, all the nations. I can imagine myself, along with his disciples, Recalling the messianic prophetic verse in Proverb in Psalm sixty nine nine, Septuagint of sixty eight ten, that said, "Zeal for your house will consume me." The messianic prediction through the psalmist down the corridors of history would be realized in Jesus when the Messiah would come. Zeal for the house of his father would consume him. Jesus fulfilled that. In John 2. So I can imagine myself seeing Jesus with the eyes of my imagination and how he acted toward the temple, the very temple that my friends are trying to urge me to get back to. Or better, what Jesus did toward what they had made of the temple. 
But Jesus even went beyond that, those symbolic actions called speech acts. When he was asked by the leaders in Jerusalem, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authorization to do these things? Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Of course, they misunderstood that. They reasoned among themselves, how can he say to destroy this temple, which is 46 years in the building under Herod's refurbishing program? And, of course, it was misread, misinterpreted as a proposed insurrection and destruction of their temple, but he was speaking of the temple of his own body, which would be destroyed in crucifixion and then raised up on the third day, of course. So I might even imagine how outraged the priests and elders in Jerusalem were at the time, especially since this seemingly insurrectionist action by Jesus struck at the very heart of that which they considered most sacred. Not only that, Jesus by this action must have disrupted the offering of animal sacrifices that was going on, for it was during a Passover. He disrupted and maybe even caused the temporary cessation of a sacred tradition in Jerusalem that had been going on for 546 years in Jerusalem, with the exception of the takeover and the abominations committed by Antiochus Epiphanes and his pagan army in the 160s BC, where he sacked the city, went into the holiest place of all, offered a pig to himself, and proclaimed himself to be God. Judas Maccabees and his army, of course, defeated Epiphanes. They must have been thinking in their mind and equating Jesus with someone like Epiphanes, a kind of antichrist figure. I can imagine myself, again, as a recipient of the letter to the Hebrews, as being urged to return to the temple sacrifices. I can imagine myself thinking of Jesus' messages in the temple complex, which reflected those fiery addresses of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 and elsewhere, leading up to the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction and the sacking of the temple in 586 B.C. by the bestial Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar, and his pagan armies. I can see Jesus having lambasted the scribes and Pharisees and their breathless hypocrisy. I can see him lamenting over Jerusalem who had been left desolate of a divine inhabitant. This lamentation by Yahweh, Yeshua, climaxed his listing of what Thomas Jefferson called in his Declaration of Independence a long train of abuses and usurpations. For the American Revolution did not occur 
until soft-spoken men had endured a long train of abuses and usurpations by despotic rulers in England. Jesus had his own list of a long train of abuses. You can find it in Matthew 23. A long train of abuses and usurpations by the leaders in Jerusalem and their ancestors, ending with the fateful denunciation in Matthew 23, where Jesus said, So on you will come all the righteous blood spilled on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I'm telling you assuredly all these things have come upon this generation. Reminiscences there of 1 Thessalonians 2.15 and 16 but of course, we have here an A.D. 70 trajectory, an arc of coherence that must be identified from Matthew through Revelation in the New Testament if we're going to properly interpret the message of the New Testament, especially its apocalyptic and prophetic passages. So I can imagine thinking about hearing and seeing Jesus as he was leaving the temple complex after lambasting the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites. You can imagine his disciples pointing out to him the magnificent architectural beauty of the buildings that made up the temple complex and the massive stones that Herod had brought in to refurbish it over the course of 46 years. And I can hear him saying, you see all these things? Not a stone will be left upon a stone of these so-called magnificent buildings. This is what led to his prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives. And because people don't see the continuity of these happenings in Matthew, they don't see the trajectory toward the demolition of the temple in A.D. 70. And so they misread and misinterpret Matthew 24 into a prophetic scenario that's supposed to affect us. There's all kinds of charlatans writing all kinds of books and producing all kinds of videos that are deceivers. And that's how Jesus led off in Matthew 24 with his magnificent apocalyptic discourse. Be careful that no one deceives you. Matthew 24, 3 and 4. So in his prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus confirms that all the events he is predicting in Matthew 24 will happen before that very generation passes away. 
Matthew 24, 34. And you put that in combination with Matthew 23, 35. On you will come all the righteous blood spilled on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And again, in verse 36 of Matthew 23, I'm telling you assuredly all these things have come upon this generation, this present generation, the one in which he was speaking. Putting Matthew 23:36 and 24:34 together, you'd have to call Jesus a liar if you say he was predicting things that are coming in your lifetime. His prediction of the utter destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 and 25, and you have to remember Matthew 25 is also dealing with the A.D. 70 events. His prediction of the utter annihilation of the temple in Matthew 24 25 would involve a series of events so significant as to require the use of apocalyptic cosmic language. Language of cos- cosmic disaster. But Jesus' symbolic act in the temple complex and elsewhere, as well as his direct speeches, predicted the end of the temple and its system of sacrifices and its priesthood. Not just in Matthew 24, throughout Matthew. This is the arc of coherence, the scriptural trajectory. 2 Peter 3.10-14 also picks up on this, the universal impact of the, and the theological, eschatological implications of the destruction of the temple. This is something that would be brought about not by human, but by divine action. Jesus never called for rebellion on part of his disciples even though his action was perceived wrongly as an insurrection. Jesus never called upon his disciples to rebel against Rome and the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, as egregious as the usurpations and abuses of the Romans were. He was going to destroy Jerusalem, which was in collusion with Rome, by a divine action, and he was telling his disciples to back off to evangelize. So we've brought to our study of Hebrews two overarching insights. One is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, who is the Son in whom God has spoken with finality in these last days. This insight includes the universal salutary or saving impact of his death on the cross which is revealed in Hebrews specifically to be the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of the Son, which consists of the expiation of the sin of the world, the sins of the world, the removal of the sin of the world. The second overarching insight that we brought to Hebrews 2020 is the A.D. 70 trajectory that is discoverable throughout the New Testament and not just in the synoptic apocalypses 
of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 19 and 21, etc. The trajectory, which I call the AD 70 trajectory, is a scriptural arc of coherence. An arc of coherence. Arc of coherence. AD 70 trajectory. This is a trajectory of Scripture that isn't just identified in Matthew 24, Mark 13, the synoptic apocalypses, Luke 21. This is a trajectory, a scriptural trajectory, that is presented to us throughout the New Testament. Matthew is a great example to show this AD 70 trajectory. In fact, one could teach the gospel, according to Matthew, as an arc of trajectory toward AD 70. And of course, the AD 30 center and heartbeat of the epistle, or that gospel, being Jesus Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and even his ascension. As I said, Hebrews is really the sequel to the passion of the Christ. And that's how it should be viewed. So, for example, many have discovered the A.D. 70 trajectory of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, his Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24 with its parallels in Mark 13, Luke 19, and Luke 21. This is a happy discovery, this A.D. 70 trajectory. It's a happy discovery, not least because it refutes the fanatical and misleading interpretations of those and other passages as end-of-the-world predictions and prophecies of eternal doom for countless human beings. The misinterpretation of the so-called rapture from the word harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, the misinterpretation of the so-called rapture has led millions to believe that Christians will be caught up and away from the earth to heaven while the world population becomes subject to the great tribulation that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24:15. when in fact the catching up of people who are alive when Jesus appears a second time, they are people who will be caught up and become cloud-like formations of trans-configured configured and glorified humans like their Lord not to be snatched away to heaven, but to return to earth with the Lord Jesus, to join the resurrected dead, and to experience the Bema evaluation or the last judgment, followed by the universal new creation of all things. <clears throat> but the prophetic scriptural trajectory toward the demolition of the temple in A.D. 70, that's a trajectory once again throughout the entirety of the New Testament, which speaks of the upcoming or anticipates the upcoming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem with its far-reaching consequences and its universally significant theological implications. 
but the prophetic scriptural trajectory toward the demolition of the temple in A.D. 70 can be seen not only in the synoptic apocalypses, but throughout the New Testament. Once again, Matthew presents a case in point. Let me show you a couple of examples, and there are many more than this. Jesus comes to the end of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, given quite early in the Matthew narrative, with an intimation of the destruction of the temple, with the parable of the houses built on a rock and a house built on sand. One house, house, built on a rock, another built on sand, respectively. Jesus likened everyone who hears his words and acts on them to a sensible man who built his house on a rock. This house was able to withstand the floods and winds that came against it because it was built on the rock. He then likened everyone who hears his words and does not act on them to a foolish man who built his house on sand. When the rains came, and they would come, when the floods arose, and they would, and the winds would come, and they did, this house fell, and great, Jesus said, was the collapse of it. Matthew seven twenty four to 27 is a parabolic prediction of the collapse of the temple in Jerusalem because the leaders there in Jerusalem were hearing Jesus' words but not acting on them by faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the houses in this parable refer to the temple built on the rock foundation, which is Jesus Christ, that being Christ himself and the church. It also refers to Jesus Christ as the builder who will build his house on the confession that was made by Peter in Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, happy are you, Peter, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven did. And then Jesus said what? On this rock, I will build my house or literally my church, on this rock. Jesus is the man who builds the house on the rock. Peter and others who believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and who held fast that confession would be that temple and that house against which the gates of Hades cannot prevail. So you see how this has a logical continuity. The houses in this parable refer to the temple built on the rock foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And by a kind of mixed metaphor to Jesus Christ as the builder who builds his house on the confession that Peter made in Matthew 16, 16 to 18. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. <clears throat> This time, Jesus says he will build his house on the rock and the gates of Hades will not withstand it. Not only will the rains and floods and winds that come against this house 
not cause its collapse. This house will be the collapse of the councils of the unseen adversaries. So again, the house, please note that metaphor, the house refers to the temple in Jerusalem, on the other hand, the house built on sand, which parabolically speaks of this house built by a foolish man on the sand. After Jesus enumerated the long train of abuses of the leaders of Jerusalem, he wept over that city and said this in Matthew 23, 37-39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone to death those who have been sent to you. How many times I, Jesus here is speaking as Yahweh, incidentally, I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood, and you didn't want that. Look, he says, now your house, now your house will be left to you abandoned by its divine inhabitant. For I'm telling you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left without an inhabitant. The house is the temple. So you see the trajectory, the AD 70 trajectory, the arc of scriptural coherence, isn't just Matthew 24. It's Matthew all the way through 24 and 25. After Jesus said this, and incidentally, remember in 2339, Jesus didn't end that lamentation with a condemnation, but with a promise. You'll see me again, Jerusalem, but it'll only be when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's predicting there the universal restoration, of course, which will even include the Jerusalem that will endure destruction, historical, historically. Historical destruction does not mean, nor does it ever constitute, eternal damnation. So after Jesus said this, speaking here of Matthew 23, 37 to 39, and as he was leaving the temple, Please notice that Jesus said, look, your house is now abandoned by its divine inhabitant. The next thing he does is the symbolic act. He leaves the temple. He exits the temple. He is the divine inhabitant. He's leaving that temple. He is the temple that they will destroy and that he will raise up after three days. Because he's divine as well as human. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it back again. He is one in the act of his own resurrection with his father. His father raised him from the dead. But Jesus also raised himself from the dead in that sense as God. He and the father are one in act. Jesus then leaves the temple complex. And on his way out, 
That's when his disciples came up to him and said, Lord, look at these buildings. Have you ever seen such spectacular architectural majesty? Jesus answered with the prediction that not a stone will be left standing on a stone of these buildings that will not be violently thrown down. Later, while Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him when these things are going to happen. They were at least smarter than the modern-day writers of books and the authors of the so-called Left Behind series. They were a lot smarter. They connected the destruction of the buildings of the temple complex with Jesus coming as the Son of Man and with the end of the age, an age that was defined by God's dwelling in that temple. They understood that. Only then did Jesus give his apocalyptic discourse on the Mount of Olives. So we must be careful to read the cues and find the clues that led to this discourse. And they're all about the temple and its destruction, which the disciples of Jesus rightly understood would be the end of an epoch. And it would signify the coming of the Son of Man. So you should put together, we should put together Matthew 24, 3 with Matthew 24, 30. I wish I could develop these things, but that's not my point or my purpose in this increment 118. Hebrews was evidently written within the last decade before the temple was destroyed, at which time the sacrifices would cease in the temple permanently. What Jesus caused temporarily in his so-called insurrectionist act in the cleansing of the temple, as it's called by tradition, would happen permanently with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. So Hebrews was written just before then. At in A.D. 70, and even before that, from 66 to 73, the sacrifices would cease in the temple and the priests and the archpriest would no longer perform their duties. But after the destruction of the temple, Jesus would still be the temple, having been raised from the dead. He would be the temple that they destroyed and that he raised in three days. This is why John said, when he wrote Revelation, and I believe it's the same John, the beloved disciple, as he's called, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he's called, as he called himself in John 13, 23, 21, 7, 21, 20, and a couple other places. As John said when he wrote Revelation, I saw no temple, that is in the New Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Revelation 21, 22. And of course, the Gospel of John is perichoretic with or interpenetrates the Apocalypse of John, as we studied in Rev the Book. 
I didn't develop that as well as I wanted to, but that's for somebody else to do. So how do we square this? How do we square this? The temple being the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, with Paul's declaration, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. You are the temple in which there dwells a divine inhabitant. Not the temple in Jerusalem. How do you square it? Jesus saying, he's the temple, and Paul saying, you're the temple. Well, the answer is, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, and so are we, because the temple is, is comprised of the triune God and the church of the firstborn. This church, ecclesia, or community, is described as the proleptic fullness of him. The proleptic fullness of him. That's the word pleroma, the famous word pleroma, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 23. The proleptic fullness. This is extremely important to an ecclesiology for the 21st century. Proleptic fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Pleroma. Let's do that all over again. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. P-L-E-R-O-M-A in an English transliteration. Pleroma. The church is the pleroma of him who will fill up all things with himself. Ephesians 1.23 So that God is to be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15:28 So of this new humanity of which we are a part especially upon confession of Jesus as the Christ the son of God of this new humanity it is said that Christ is all and in you all in Colossians 3:11 already so you're a prolepsis or a forecast an anticipation of what will be true of universal humanity, all of humanity. They, that is, we, are a prolepsis or an anticipation of the universal perichoresis or the universal mutual interpenetration of God and all of creation, most famously depicted in 1 Corinthians 15.28. Until the end of this evil age, therefore, the church of the firstborn is the house built on a rock. Until the end of this evil age, the church will be that house that Messiah Jesus is building. The house of God over which Jesus is the faithful son Get it? He's the faithful son over this house, Hebrews 3, 6, but he's also the faithful great archpriest over this 
house. The son is the archpriest. Your friends who say you don't even have an archpriest anymore have something coming. Oh, yes, we do. And we don't have one like you do. He's infinitely better. So even today, we who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, have this great archpriest because we're going to find out he is a priest for the age, a priest through the age. He is a priest with an incorruptible, imperishable life, making intercession and providing assistance to the saints embattled and weak on this earth. Moreover, we demonstrate that we are his house when we confidently hold fast the hope which is worth being proud of. It's called a boast because our, our hope is worth being proud of. I'm proud of the hope I have in Jesus Christ, and my boast is in the Lord. So in closing, that's the big picture. Presenting it, we're better prepared to see how significant is the arch priesthood of Jesus, the Son of God. And so here's my definition of Hebrews. Hebrews, in toto, in its totality, is the most magnificent possible answer to the charge that these Christians lack the privilege and provision of an archpriest. In our present passage, this is said succinctly and earnestly. We do have a great archpriest. He has passed through the heavens into the region beyond the torn veil where he represents us advocates for us, intercedes for us, and intervenes in our situations with assistance. And he does so in perpetuity. We have a priest for the entire age who is like Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, not that Melchizedek was an eternal priest, the one we are introduced to in Genesis fourteen eighteen to 20. Not that that man was himself an eternal priest, but that he is a type for the antitype, which is Jesus, the Son of God. So it seems that Christians who were addressed by this concerned teaching pastor Having such a great archpriest who is also the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world and God's eternal Son, it seems these people could be identified as the Israel of God. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We are grateful that your Holy Spirit is allowing us insights into this epistle, into this homily in a letter, because we see it addressed to ourselves, addressed to our generation in a very poignant way, especially in times that we're traveling through right now. So we end on a note of great thanksgiving to you, Father. 
We pray that you'll consistently and continually bless the going forth of your word through the teaching of Hebrews in this very series, and that it may benefit many people who indeed come to see with the eyes of their understanding and the eyes of their heart Jesus as our great arch priest. Amen.